0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too.
1: What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the No Sabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson.
4: And I'm Holly Fry.
0: So perhaps uh, you have heard of Mary Robinette Kowal, maybe, if you're a listener to this podcast. She has written, among other things, a series of novels that are known as the Glamorous Histories. And these are basically Jane Austen novels with magic. So if that sounds delightful to you and you have not read them, you will probably be delighted. Because uh, they are pretty charming and touching and funny. And the third one was some of my most recent airplane reading while I was... On a flight. And that book is called Without a Summer. It's set in 1816. And in addition to several running mentions of past uh, podcast subjects, the Luddites, there's ongoing discussion about about whether that year's unseasonably cold weather is caused by magic, basically. So this is not unseasonably cold, like chillier than normal. It's unseasonably cold, like it's snowing in July and all of the crops have frozen in the ground. So, in spite of the similarities in their names, I was so absorbed in this book that it wasn't until the very end that I made the connection that this unseasonably cold fictional setting is the same as the real-world event, the year without a summer, which is also a listener request from listener Cecile. So, Cecile, you can thank Mary Robinette Kowal for for bumping this to the top of the list because uh, after we landed I was like, I want to learn more about that and what really happened.
4: So this story actually starts with a volcano. And the volcano, which was Tambora on the island of Sumbawa, Indonesia, was probably not the only factor in 1816's bizarre weather. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But it was definitely a very significant major part of it. And it had immediate devastating effects in Asia and the tropical Pacific. And a lot of these are, unfortunately, really glossed over when people talk about the year without a summer.
0: There were several major volcanic eruptions in the early 18-teens. One was Soufriere on St. Vincent Island in the Caribbean in 1812. Mount Mayon in the Philippines erupted in 1814. And then there was an immense explosion from Tambora, which started on April 5th, 1815, and went on for days. With the worst of the eruption Really getting going on the 10th.
4: And in the memoir of Sir Stamford Raffles, the British Lieutenant Governor of Java at the time, quote, the first explosions were heard on this island in the evening of the 5th of April. They were noticed in every quarter and continued at intervals until the following day. The noise was, in the first instance, almost universally attributed to distant cannon. So much so that a detachment of troops were marched from jokjakarta in the expectation that a neighboring post was attacked. And along the coast, boats were in two instances dispatched in quest of a supposed ship in distress. On the following morning, however, a slight fall of ashes removed all doubt as to the cause of the sound. And he goes on to say that it sounded so close that they really all believed it was a volcano that was actually much closer to them than Tambora.
0: When the eruption started, eyewitnesses on the island of Sumbawa reported three extremely tall, very distinct columns of flame that came up from the volcano's crater. And then they kind of crashed into one another high up above it before cascading back down. Stones that were on average the size of a walnut also rained down, along with tons and tons of ash. Also falling in the vicinity of the mountain were trees and even animals that had been on the upper slopes, which were torn apart by the eruption.
4: The eruption of Tambora, in case you could not surmise this from Tracy's description, was huge. It was much bigger and much deadlier than the far more well-known eruption of Krakatoa that happened almost 70 years later. People reported hearing it as far away as Sumatra, which is more than a thousand miles away from where it was happening.
0: There was also so much ash in the air that it was, according to reports, dark for three days, for 300 miles around the volcano after the eruption peaked. The volcano itself also got a lot shorter. It lost almost a third of its pre-eruption height, Dropping from 4,200 to 2,800 meters.
4: Not surprisingly, the island of Sumbawa was devastated. More than 10,000 people died in the eruption itself.
0: The entire island was covered in ash, and this ash had an average depth of between 50 and 60 centimeters, so, between 20 and 30 inches of ash. The ash was deeper the closer you got to the volcano, and so much of it fell that buildings collapsed under its weight. And a 2004 archaeological expedition found a village that was buried under an ash layer 10 feet thick.
4: Ash spread to the north and northwest, blanketing the sea and the neighboring islands. British vessels reported patches of ash in the sea around Indonesia that was several feet deep and had to be essentially plowed through two of Sumbawa's
0: princedoms were completely destroyed, and their common languages became extinct.
4: And the influx of volcanic material into the ocean also spawned a tsunami that struck other parts of the island, as well as neighboring islands, so that people who had survived the initial eruption wound up being killed in the tsunami afterward. Most
0: of the crops in the surrounding area were destroyed, and as is so often the case when there's such a massive natural disaster Famine and disease spread in its wake, including among livestock and wild animals. People became so hungry that they resorted to eating their horses, which were working animals that were necessary for transportation and for work. And all of this wasn't limited just to the island of Sumbawa. People in neighboring islands starved to death as volcanic ash killed their rice crops.
4: There was a massive migration to other islands, and some of those islands could not sustain the needs of all of these newcomers that were causing their economies and their food supplies to collapse. And many of those islands were facing famines and epidemics of their own in the wake of the volcano. Bali and Lombok were particularly hard hit.
0: Estimates of the total death toll in Indonesia really vary. But sources generally agree that it was at least one hundred seventeen thousand people who died in the eruption and its, its aftermath.
4: It took more than five years before crops could be harvested again on the most affected parts of Sumbawa. Recovery was extremely slow. Two government officials wrote that the princedoms of Sumbawa and Dompo were, quote, "beginning to recover in eighteen twenty four so we're talking about almost a decade later. Other princedoms were, in their words, still, quote, a desolate heap of rubble.
0: The whole thing had an extremely long-lasting effect on the island's ecology. You could probably even say that it was permanently changed. In places, ash made the ground more fertile, but it was also drier. So Bali and Lombok, so neighboring islands, wound up with really bountiful rice harvests a few years later, thanks to all the ash in the soil, But on Sumbawa, the volcano and the ash destroyed all the vegetation and the streams and springs that the vegetation had been sheltering consequently dried up. So while the soil was richer, it was also a lot drier. So Sumbawa didn't get quite the same benefit as some of the other outlying uh, islands did once it had started to recover.
4: The dust uh, from the ash spread around the world. It caused brilliant sunsets, and it also wreaked havoc with the weather over the following months. In the U.S., dust in the air was reported in the Washington, D.C., Daily National Intelligencer on May 1st of 1816, and in the Norfolk, Virginia, American Beacon on the 9th. The editor of the Boston Columbia Sentinel remarked that the sun itself seemed dimmer on July 15th, which he thought was because of sunspots. And while there was a lot of sunspot activity, it was almost certainly because of all of the ash in the atmosphere.
0: So we are going to talk about exactly what that ash caused in terms of the weather after a brief word from a sponsor. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
5: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
1: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa, but how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's talk about myths, baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories.
4: Let's get back to the slightly less peppy uh, discussion of the year without a summer.
0: So to return to Tambora, before we talk about how this eruption affected the weather in parts of the world, we have a couple of caveats. One is that the measurement and record keeping related to weathered statistics have really improved dramatically in the years since all of this happened. Most of the places that we're talking about did not have any sort of methodical pattern of observing the weather and writing it down which is something we pretty much take for granted today. So that means a lot of the records that we have are erratic and subjective. But there is a ton of documentation overall in the historical record in the form of newspapers, letters, journals, diaries, and other documents. So there's so much of it that we know just from that part, uh, that this was a real event and not just somebody overreacting about a cold snap.
4: Also, we have a lot of documentation about 1816's weather in North America and Europe and parts of Asia. But while it's pretty logical to conclude that the weather was completely weird everywhere as a consequence of all of this volcanic activity, we have much less uh, in the way of actual records from Africa, South America, and Australia. So when we walk through what we know, it is mostly from North American, European, and Asian points of view.
0: In North America, particularly on the East Coast, stretching from the Carolinas all the way up through what's now Ontario and Quebec. The spring of 1816 was overall cooler and drier than normal, although there were some big uh, warm spells mixed in. Temperatures kind of swung wildly from balmy to freezing and back
4: again. Then the summer had three extreme cold spells in June, July and August. The first huge cold wave stretched from June 5th to June 11th. Temperatures in New England dropped from the 80s to the 40s in the wake of a thunderstorm, and that actually became the high for the next several days. 18 inches of snow was reported in Cabot, Vermont, on the 8th. And a hard frost that stretched well into the south on the 11th killed most of the crops that had managed to survive up until that point. People started to talk about the real possibility of a famine.
0: Within weeks, New England temperatures were uh, really unseasonably hot again, breaking 100 in parts of Massachusetts, which doesn't happen all that often, especially not this early in the season.
4: Another four-day cold snap hit eastern North America starting on July 6th. In this case, frosts killed the replanted crops, although it was not as snowy this time around. Most of the snow reported in the U.S. was in the mountains of Vermont, But further north in Montreal, bodies of water completely froze over with a layer of ice. This snap also reached even farther south, causing cold weather and frosts in places that had escaped in the June wave. The cold weather came back
0: again on August 21st, causing more snow in the Vermont mountains, along with frosts as far south as North Carolina and as far west as Kentucky and Ohio.
4: Just as alarming at this point was a drought, which had affected much of the southern and eastern U.S., and it's estimated that up to half of the cotton crop in the south failed because of this dry weather. Grain prices skyrocketed, and the drought didn't break until September after the cold weather was over, only to be about to start again because it was heading into autumn. The price of flour rose from $4 a barrel to between $11 and $20 per barrel, The wholesale price of wheat nearly doubled, and the price of virtually every food staple shot up.
0: There was also a huge increase in migration of farmers from the eastern United States into the west, as people hoped that they would find better growing conditions, uh, and because the west really hadn't seen the kind of unseasonable cold that the east coast had. About twice as many people decided to move west that year as was typical at that point.
4: In several states, including New York, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, people called for a ban on distillery because of the grain shortage. When people couldn't afford grain to feed their livestock and their working animals, they ate the animals instead.
0: So that was North America's 1816 summer. In Europe, the summer was similarly wintry. But it also seemed like it got all the rain that North America had been missing. Western Europe was the most affected, but crops failed all over the continent thanks to the fields being flooded and later frozen. Crops that are sensitive to having too much water, like wine grapes, really suffered in their quality when they managed to survive. Plus, all the incessant rain made things generally wet and moldy. Because horses were the main source of transportation and grain became so much more expensive, the cost of travel in Europe skyrocketed.
4: Famine spread in Switzerland and Ireland. In Switzerland, the government had to distribute information about how to tell poisonous plants from ones that were safe to eat as people tried to scavenge what they could from out in the woods or the wilds. In Ireland, a typhus epidemic spread in the wake of the famine.
0: The story that sticks in a lot of people's minds about how this Played out in Europe, is that the infamous evening in which George Gordon, Lord Byron, proposed that all of his guests at his Lake Geneva uh, villa write a story, that's the visit in which Mary Shelley wound up writing Frankenstein, that all happened in the middle of this cold, wretched summer.
4: And also written during this uh, was Byron's poem, Darkness, and that poem begins, I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander, darkling in the eternal space. Rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went, and came, and brought no day. And men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation, and all hearts were chilled to a selfish prayer for light.
0: In Asia, moving on to the third big place that we have lots of information about, The volcano disrupted the monsoon cycle in India and Korea, so things were dry when they were supposed to be wet, and then way wetter than they were supposed to be once the rain actually arrived. This caused rice crops, which really rely on that monsoon cycle, to fail all over.
4: The change in the weather also affected which bacteria could thrive in the Bay of Bengal. And unfortunately, one species that did thrive was a new strain of cholera, which people had less resistance to than previous strains. Bengal cholera spread out of India to the rest of the world in 1817, and the strain killed tens of millions of people. There's actually some debate in the scientific community about just how much of this shift had to do with the volcano.
0: In Yunnan province in southwestern China, crops failed in the face of just bitter, bitter cold and a much wetter season than normal. In the book Tambora, The Eruption That Changed the World, author Gillen Darcy Wood connects this and this massive crop failure and famine to the rise of opium growth in Yunnan as farmers turned to it in desperation as a way to try to just make enough money to survive when the rest of their crops had failed.
4: A huge famine swept through southwest China and it lasted for years. Neighboring parts of China had an influx of refugees, and much of the nation faced a serious social unrest. So before
0: we talk about some of the theories at the time for what was going on, let's have another pause for a word from a sponsor. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit
5: QuickBooks. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
1: And invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's talk about myths, baby. Is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life? Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories.
0: So unsurprisingly, there were many, many explanations at the time for what was going on and what was causing this just bizarre weather. These actually start with a story about why the volcano erupted in the first place. The population of Zimbabwe was largely Muslim, and there was a folk tale explaining the event, and that was that a prince had fed a devout Muslim a dog and then killed him. And the volcano's eruption was an act of divine retribution for that act.
4: A range of explanations for the weather cropped up in North America and Europe as well. A primary theory was sunspots, as we mentioned briefly earlier. There were a number of extremely large sunspots that year, some of which were visible to the unaided eye. And people thought these darker areas of the sun were colder, which is true, and a colder sun meant colder weather. Not everyone was on board with this idea, though, since the timing of the sunspots did not always match up with the coldest weather.
0: There is actually a lot of continued study and discussion about exactly how much sunspots can affect the Earth's weather and climate. Uh, And it's partly because this all happens on such a huge scale. And the sunspot cycle itself is so long that it's almost impossible to isolate just sunspots From all of the other stuff in the world that's going on while the sunspot cycle is peaking.
4: Yeah, you can't really turn off the sun to get a control group without it.
0: Yeah, and you can't turn (laughs) off the volcanoes to study just the sun. Yeah. So I really tried to find a definitive answer of could sunspots have been, and that there's not a definitive answer.
4: Another theory at this time is that it had something to do with ice. In North America, ice seemed to persist in the Great Lakes for longer than normal, and a number of ships reported huge ice flows floating in the North Atlantic. People thought that all of this ice was actually sucking the heat out of the atmosphere.
0: This is really more of a cause and effect situation. (laughs) There was more ice on the Great Lakes because it was colder (laughs) than normal. Uh, But then there was more ice floating in the Northern Atlantic because this whole time actually caused a warming uh trend over the poles, and so a lot of polar ice broke up and floated away. So that, it was more of a cause and effect situation than the the ice sucking the heat out of the air. Also, a series of pretty large earthquakes had struck various points on the earth in the 18-teens, and people also blamed the weather on this. The idea was that the earth's motion had somehow caused some kind of fluid equilibrium between the surface of the earth and the atmosphere. And that until something broke that equilibrium, that there would not be enough warmth available for crops to grow.
4: Other scapegoats that were named as the cause of all of these problems, uh, Benjamin Franklin's lightning rods. They were stealing electricity and disrupting the weather because, you know, he'd invented them in the mid 1700s and they'd become more commonplace since then. So clearly, since that happened before the weather, it must have caused this terrible weather.
0: There's so many explanations. That, that logic is that,
4: sound. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I and mean, We still see this today when people don't totally understand something and they'll feel like that because one thing happened before another thing, that the first thing caused the second thing. And uh, it's often not true at all.
4: Right. It's that um, like chronological causality attribution that's not. Not always valid.
0: So the prevailing theory today is that the volcanic activity, including that from Tambora and the other eruptions that were mentioned at the top of the show, was at least one of the primary contributors. And this was actually something that people did discuss a little bit at the time. It was certainly not a widespread theory, but there were people who were like, you know, maybe all this ash in the atmosphere, which is from a volcano is making it colder. Like people are pretty smart that way. Um, However, 1816 was not the only year in that time period that had weird weather. In general, it was colder than normal in a lot of places from 1812 to 1817 to the point that people took notice. And by studying things like ice cores and tree rings and that kind of long-term documentation that the Earth leaves of itself, uh, scientists know that this was not really just a little five-year window of a cold snap. The 1800s fell at the end of a relative cool snap that lasted around the world for almost 500 years, starting in 1400 and ending in around 1860.
4: At least in the U.S., the year without a summer prompted people to start making more routine observances and recordings of weather conditions. The Commissioner General of the Land Office, uh, Josiah Miggs, sent out a memo to all of his registers at 20 different land offices, instructing them to make and record a number of observations about everything from the weather to animal migrations. The military also started making and recording weather observations at the direction of Joseph Lovell, the Surgeon General of the Army. And the Patent Office and the Smithsonian Institution got in on the action as well, and consequently, The first published weather forecasts came out in the U.S. in 1849.
0: So when I started researching this episode, I kind of expected it to be a little bit like the long winter part two. So (laughs) we talked about the long winter, which Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote about uh, last time about this time of year. And that was the weather was really cold. Things were really hard. uh, Things were tough. But overall, everything worked out okay for the most part. And I sort of thought this was going to be similar. To that, uh, I was not expecting all of the famines and deaths, and the extreme scale of how deadly the volcano was. The a lot of um, like a lot of people who have written to suggest the topic or other uh, things that I've seen about it kind of go. This was a year that had terrible weather. A volcano caused it, and the. That's sort of all that's said about the volcano, as though the volcano was on an island that was totally
4: uninhabited. Right.
0: Uh, And that is not the case at all.
4: This episode gives me um, flashbacks to when I was a kid and Mount St. Helens erupted because I lived in Washington State at the time. So I am very familiar with being covered with ash.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I've never lived near an active volcano, so I have not had that experience. Those are wild times.
4: I remember my biggest concern, and again, I was a child at the time, so my biggest concern was that all the animals had been killed. I was really upset about the animals that may have lost their lives, even though probably most of them fled before the activity actually started. I'm sure Mm -hmm. some still lost their lives, but that was my big focus as a child. I did not care that there was crap all over everything we owned and like a (laughs) half inch of ash sitting everywhere. I was like, what about the deer? I was really, that was my focus. <laughs>
0: wow! So, uh, I have some listener mail that is cheerier than this episode. Hooray! I actually, I actually have two pieces. This is—we are recording this episode as literally one of the last things before, uh, before the holidays, uh, and it's going to be a while before it's my turn for listener mail. So I'm doubling up today so that things <laughs> don't get overlooked later on. Uh, they are both about our episode about the gnome serum run, and this first one was from Karen. Karen says, I listen to your podcasts during the hundreds of hours, literally, that I spend on the trails training my long-distance dog team. I am not making that up. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Me, too. Imagine my delight today to queue up your Wednesday podcast and find it on a subject near and dear to my heart, the serum run. See, I have competed in the Iditarod Trail sled dog race 11 times. I have run dogs through Nanana, up the Yukon River, through Nulato, across the very intimidating Norton Sound, and into Nome. Each of my purebred Siberian Huskies can trace their roots back to dogs on Sapala's serum-run team, which was Togo, who we talked about in the episode. Just wanted to let you know that I thought you did a very excellent job of covering the subject. The pronunciations you were worried about were spot-on, and you did a more accurate job with the subject than about anyone I've heard. Well done! Oh, and I wanted to say that you are right. Minus 50 is ridiculously cold, and sled dogs are indeed amazing. The most amazing creatures on the planet, if you ask me. I've been running dogs for over 20 years, and they still amaze me every day. Sincerely, Karen. And then I'm going to read another one. This one is from uh, Marie, and Marie says, It was positively delightful to see some Alaskan history pop up in my podcast this morning, even if it isn't an event I missed in history class. It was still an, an interesting listen. I won't lie, part of the fun was listening to you both try really hard to say incredibly di- difficult Alaskan words correctly. I'm not surprised you could not find any pronunciation guides online. I am a lifelong Alaskan. My father was born in Anchorage before Alaska became a state and wonder sometimes if the difficult names are purposeful to point out who uh, to point out those who have not lived here. I wanted to say thank you for talking about how important dogs and dog sledding are to the history of Alaska and its current culture. To many outside the state, it is difficult to comprehend the vastness and sheer impassability of a lot of the terrain, particularly north of the Brooks Range, to give you an idea of the distances involved. Nome is just over 500 air miles from Anchorage. That is roughly the same distance from, as from Atlanta, Georgia, to Pittsburgh, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. I say air miles because that is the most common way to get to Nome. It is not connected to the Alaskan highway system. and does not have a ferry service. The Iditarod race, which you referenced in the podcast, is about a thousand miles, give or take a few dozen, depending on checkpoint locations. Even if this were an actual highway, it would be the equivalent of driving from Montreal, Canada, to Atlanta, Georgia. That's about 21 hours of driving, according to TravelMath.com. I do want to say a word of caution that I hope goes out to your listeners. Sled dogs are amazing creatures and incredible athletes. They are bred to work hard in cold weather, have remarkable endurance, and the ability to persevere in circumstances that most animals would balk at. These same qualities mean that they are not always suited to be pets. While many breeds do make good pets, it is important with any working breed of dog to consider the traits that make them special also make them challenging. A dog bred for cold weather is not as well suited to a hot climate. Dogs bred to run long distances can become hyperactive when confined to a yard. As amazing as these animals are, please consider carefully before bringing one into your home. Not every house, or family is suited to an animal that is the canine equivalent of an Olympic athlete. Thanks for your knowledge and keep up the good work, Marie. Thank you so much,
4: Karen and Marie. I love both of those emails a bunch.
0: I love them both so much too. And I do want to have kind of a full disclosure. They they both uh, said that we did a good job on saying things. Other people have said that we did not do a good job. Um, I pronounced Nanana as Nanana again because we've gotten three different pronunciations.
4: Yeah. <laughs> they contradict correction. each other. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I said Nanana in the show and we've heard Nanana, Ninana and Nanana. I don't know which is the right one. So <laughs> um, this is the case with many things that we try to say correctly in the show. So, uh I just want to talk about dogs some more. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, you can. We're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash mist history and on Twitter at mist history. Our Tumblr is mist and we're on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash mist history. We have a Spreadshirt store full of shirts and other goodies that is at mist if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. You can put the word volcano in the search bar and you will find the article How Volcanoes Work. You can also come to our website, which is MistInHistory.com, where we have an archive of every single episode we have ever done, show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have done, some blog posts from past hosts of the podcast, all kinds of cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics visit HowStuffWorks.com
1: issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in. Take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone was like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.